Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part one of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject. Philippe Petit, The Man on Wire. Now let's get started with our story about Philippe Petit. On August 7, 1974, a 25-year-old Frenchman named Philippe Petit stepped onto a 200-foot wire connecting both towers of the World Trade Center. This 440-pound link suspended 1,350 feet above the ground and one inch thick was completely unprotected by any kind of safety net. Petit, a skilled acrobat, magician, and tightrope walker, stealthily planned this feat on site for months and had originally gotten the idea seven years earlier, long before construction on the Twin Towers even began. For 45 minutes, employing only a 55-foot-pound, 30-foot-long pole for balance, Petit performed on the high wire, traversing the narrow connection eight total times. He walked, kneeled, bowed, saluted, and even lay on his back while thousands of onlookers were transfixed on the streets below. When police finally reached the top of both towers, Petit refused to leave the wire until law enforcement threatened to cut his support cables and even asserted that they would use a helicopter to end his performance. Finally, with NYPD becoming increasingly irate and rain-threatening, Petit stepped off of the wire. He and one accomplice were immediately handcuffed and taken to a local precinct. Although detained momentarily, Petit was eventually released, his only sanction a promise to perform a children's charity performance in Central Park. Front-page news around the world, photographs of Petit's stunning feat briefly electrified the public. But other than a cursory description, very little information about the daredevil's background, process, and motivation was unearthed. It would be many years before a more complete exploration of Petit's unique personality and motivation emerged. Philippe Petit was born in Nemours, Seine-et-Marne, France, on August 13, 1949. His father, Edmund, was a military pilot imprisoned by the Nazis during World War II, decorated with the Croix de Guerre and an accomplished author whose most famous literary work was a popular history of aviation. Serving for over 20 years in the French military most likely produced a parenting style that his son found harsh and oppressive. Philippe's relationship with his parents can probably be best defined by the fact that on his 17th birthday, they legally emancipated him. Although most of the information concerning his childhood and upbringing stems from interviews and accounts originating with Petit himself, certain fundamental chronological events concerning his youth are evident. Discussing his formal education 
Petit once explained that he was completely disinterested in such a pursuit, disavowing any of the basic examinations required, stating that, I refuse to take the basic exam to prove I can read, write, and count, and thereby jeopardize my chances of landing a job, picking up garbage, or operating a cash register. By age 18, Petit was expelled by five different schools, spending most of his time in attendance practicing card and magic tricks and pickpocketing his instructors. Even as a small child, he took up juggling, climbing, and acrobatics and was completely infatuated with the circus and high-wire performers specifically. A student of this esoteric art, he learned of of the historic exploits of several French practitioners, known specifically in the French language as funambules, not wire walkers, who were considered plodding and dull, but wire performers who entertained their stability a given. The most inspirational was Jean-Francois Gravelet, known professionally as Charles Blondine, who in 1859 successfully navigated the 1,100-foot Niagara Gorge in the vicinity of Niagara Falls. He theatrically completed this feat on several successive occasions blindfolded, carrying his manager on his back and even standing on a chair with only one leg on the underlying rope. The wire became Petit's main focus even as a teenager. At age 16, he set up practice ropes at his parents' country home, erecting them between two trees only a few feet above the ground as he practiced and achieved basic proficiency, removing his base until one rope remained. He so impressed Rudolf Omenkowski Sr., the head of a famous European tightrope walking troupe known as Les Diables Blancs, the White Devils, that Omenkowski offered to hire him as a member of the unit and mentor him as a full-fledged professional funambule. A loner, even as a younger person, Petit demurred. Instead, he paid Papa Rudy, as Omenkowski was known, to explain the basics of securing the cables themselves, the fundamental aspect of wire-performing expertise essential to a successful performance. Petit was not particularly attracted to performing with a traditional circus, and the feeling seems to have been mutual. Instead, he spent his early 20s working as a busker in the Saint-Germain-des-Prix section of Paris, performing a melange of magic, juggling, and even utilizing a low-strung rope, typically riding a unicycle or somersaulting on this prop. He was frequently arrested, harassment that only hardened a contrary, anti-establishment mentality, and instilled in him the belief that great success was only achievable by ignoring the norms of traditional society. But even during his years as a modest street performer, Petit was already focused on his raison d'etre. As he subsequently stated, in 1968, he was in a Paris dentist's office, 18 years old, dealing with a toothache. While browsing through a pile of dated newspapers, he suddenly stumbled on a photograph that accompanied an article about the incipient Twin Towers of the World Trade Center in New York City. Although construction was still only in development, a rendition comparing the proposed structures superimposed by the Eiffel Tower immediately impressed the teenager. The proposed edifices more than 300 feet higher than the iconic French spire. The photo itself became part of an extensive file of similar articles and pieces of paper that Petit assembled in a large box labeled simply, Projects. 
Without the means or financing to attempt to conquer the World Trade Center, this dream remained just that, a hopeless ambition and a figment of Petit's healthy imagination. Instead, he focused on an objective that became obvious, especially as the architectural site, spectacular enough to excite him, was clearly visible from his one-room, left-bank apartment on the Rue Laplace. The Cathedral of Notre Dame had the requisite Gothic twin tower design and was a central Paris cultural landmark, a suitable stage for the shock and awe impact that Petit had in mind. He spent much of 1970 and the first six months of 1971 surreptitiously planning what he called Le Coups, accessing the vicinity of the cathedral's towers, including areas not open to the general public recruiting two Confederates to help transport the extensive equipment necessary for such an effort, and even fashioning his own skeleton key to gain access to the church at night, when, while the structure was closed and deserted, he was free to set up the wire and complex support system of secondary long struts known as cavaletti, meant to keep the walking surface as taut as possible. He worked methodically, planning the stunt most closely with photographer Jean-Louis Blondeau, an individual he met at age 16 when Blondeau was selling drawings and photographs on the streets of Paris. Using the key on the night of June 25th and the early morning of June 26th, 1971, Philippe Petit and his associates ascended the towers of Notre Dame Cathedral. Blondeau tossed a fishing line attached to a tennis ball to Petit in the other tower. A thicker rope was attached to this initial line and then pulled across the gap between the two towers. This process repeated with thicker ropes until the heavy metal cable was attached to this connection and pulled across the open space. Petit and Blondeau worked all night, securing the wire until the early morning hours of Saturday. Then, to the amazement of the ever-increasing group of tourists that gathered in the plaza in front of the cathedral, Petit dressed in his typical all-black clothing, walked onto the cable and for three hours juggled balls and pins, walked rapidly back and forth, and even lay on his back as the crowd applauded below. Police eventually responded, but were unable to determine how to remove the wire, specifically placed so that only Petit and his crew were able to dismantle it. Eventually, after three hours, when he grew tired of the spectacle, Petit voluntarily surrendered to gendarme, who conveyed him to the local police precinct to ascertain his identity, but then allowed him to return to the cathedral to dismantle his equipment. He was then taken back to the police station, but eventually released while officials decided what to legally do with him. Initially, the event caused a sensation both in France and globally, with pictures of Petit on the wire between the two towers appearing on front pages around the world. However, French media quickly either moved on or even were critical of Petit, considering the walk a desecration of a sacred national landmark. Disappointed that his coup did not generate more attention, Petit then began a period of travel that included the United States, the Soviet Union, and even Australia, where Petit explored the New South Wales scene in the town of Nimbin, a counterculture cannabis location akin to a miniature Amsterdam in the middle of nowhere in the country. Performing his street art, he scraped out a living for a month and somewhat spontaneously decided upon a second coup, a walk between the two pylons of the southern end of the Sydney Harbour Bridge. 
Assisted by some local Australians he met in Nimbin, he persuaded a local wire distributor to give him the requisite cable in exchange for a performance of magic and juggling for the company's employees. With huge padlocked doors impossible to pick or penetrate, Petit hacksawed his way in through barred gaps high above the ground, and with his newfound friends reconnoitered both pylons at night. Eventually, they were able to rig the bridge in preparation for the crossing scheduled to occur on June 3, 1973. At rush hour on the morning of June 3rd, Petit ascended the wire and crossed several times, pausing again to perform his trademark move of lying on his back for several minutes, supported only by the thin cable, almost 300 feet above the ground. His appearance brought rush hour traffic to a standstill, the bridge a major access point to downtown Sydney. Like the French police, local law enforcement was not amused and was also not as passive as their Parisian counterparts. They demanded that Petit immediately get down and began shaking some of the cavalettis to emphasize their displeasure. When they then threatened to cut these cables, Petit relented and surrendered, another arrest concluding his performance. While spectacular, the Sydney coup was almost an afterthought, Petit eventually returning to France to begin planning an assault on the Twin Towers. The event, while a sensation in Australia, received modest coverage elsewhere. Unlike his first two escapades, the World Trade Center posed two distinct challenges. First, the walk itself at a height that was almost five times higher than Notre Dame and more than three times higher than the Sydney Bridge height. Additionally, he would have to penetrate both building security and an ongoing construction site in a structure that literally rested on top of a police precinct. And he did not have an infinite time window. Once construction was completed, Petit would not be able to access the roof so that each passing day without a viable plan meant he was getting closer to the window closing on his grandiose conspiracy. On January 6, 1974, he left France and headed to New York. He subsisted by performing on the streets and through the largesse of Francis Brune, a fellow gainfully employed circus acrobat who agreed to supply a modest amount of money to support the effort. While performing in front of the New York Public Library, he met an American photographer, Jim Moore, who became essential to the organization of his potentially greatest coup. It was three weeks before Petit took the subway downtown and, for the first time, got a look at the Twin Towers in person. Even he was humbled by the magnitude of both buildings, recalling later that the same word kept unconsciously repeating in his mind. Impossible. But even on this first attempt at reconnaissance, Petit would access forbidden stairwells, avoid police, and, when encountering construction workers, act as if he belonged. Although it took an hour, he finally emerged, alone on the top of one of the Twin Towers. Far from complete, the building did not even have a guardrail. It was 1,350 feet high and eventually contained 110 stories. Petit was still so intimidated that when he got to the edge of the structure, he could barely look down and focused instead on the distance between the two towers. Not wanting to be detected on his first visit, Petit only spent a few minutes on the roof and eventually successfully made it back to the street, his confidence returning and his mind already attempting to formulate ideas as to how to meet this challenge. 
The next day, he returned with Jim Moore, their goal to photograph various potentially exploitable locations for a cable. Moore was stunned by the sheer height and the distance to the other tower and declared that Petit was insane. The aerialist delighted to the photographer's reaction and even climbed over the three-foot-high bar that was the only restraint on the side of the building. Moore then took a series of photos, the final image, a shot of Petit, standing on the absolute edge of the tower, balancing a large workman's broom on his nose. The winter wind was an additional obstacle, making even this stunt incredibly dangerous. Having gotten a first-hand look at the World Trade Center, Petit returned to France, telling Jim Moore that he would come back to New York City with additional manpower to help with Le Coup. His first recruit was again Jean-Louis Blondeau, who was critical during Petit's walk at Notre Dame, not only helping set up the cable, but also documenting the act through photographs that appeared all over the world. Blondeau agreed immediately to participate, but also pointed out how much planning still remained before they could even consider such a task. At Notre Dame, Blondeau threw the tennis ball to Petit, connecting the first wire that allowed the cable to eventually be stretched across the gap between the towers of the cathedral. And it was Blondeau who eventually supplied the solution to how to get the fishing line from one of the twin towers to the other, a crossbow and arrow. Petit also reconnected with his on-again-off-again girlfriend, Annie Alex, who initially agreed to help, but was greatly alarmed by the entire venture. While he was in France, she accompanied him on a visit to Papa Rudy Ormankowski to discuss some of the challenges Petit already anticipated. He also conferred with an engineer who explained to him the unique architecture of the towers and their ability to rock back and forth to accommodate high-velocity wind. Potentially, this movement could snap a wire rigidly attached to the roof of both buildings. Then it was on to Vari, to the country home of Petit's parents, for more practice and preparation. Here Petit was joined by Mark Lewis, an Australian accomplice during the Sydney Bridge Caper, and Jean-Louis Blondeau, the group assembled to address the actual specifics of the coup. Petit also practiced on a 100-foot-long wire, having the men shake and pull the pretend cable to simulate the wind that may be present at the height of the Twin Towers. Petit then flew to New York City for a third time, with Mark Lewis in tow. Their prompt return to the roof interrupted by a policeman, who believed their story that they were merely confused tourists from France who blundered onto the roof. Checking their identities and recording their names, he explained that they were trespassing and warned them not to return. Initially concerned that his continued access to the towers was in jeopardy, Petit then utilized a phony letter from a French architectural periodical that identified him as a journalist interested in interviewing construction workers involved in finishing the World Trade Center project. Initially skeptical, the employee responsible for screening such requests eventually relented, and this time Petit assembled a film crew of three, including himself, Mark Lewis as a sound man, and Jim Moore as a cameraman. Accompanied by a WTC publicity rep, they interviewed numerous workmen, Petit conversing in fluent French, Russian, German, or Spanish, depending on the nationality of the interviewee. But Jim Moore was also filming various other locations on the roof that Petit was discreetly pointing out. Petit was encouraged enough by this adventure to continue an attempt to seriously move forward. He located a wire and cable company to obtain the custom wire and material he will need, 
as well as the various block and tackle that will be used to offset any problem with the potential wind sway of the two towers. An apartment sitting location is even obtained, allowing an invitation for Jean-Louis to come to New York. When he arrives, one of his first tasks is to clean the greased cable with gasoline a few feet at a time, which he does in the street in front of the group's now communal apartment. Despite much turmoil and disagreement, a date was actually set for the coup, May 30th. But this date collapses when the two Australians involved disagree with Petit's specific rigging plans, and the equipment is too heavy to move, the cardboard bottoms of the boxes used literally breaking apart. In despair, Petit gave up this attempt before it is seriously implemented. Blondeau advised him to announce to all involved that the coup is merely being postponed, but Petit was rattled by the setback. He implored Annie Alex to come to New York to try and cheer him up, and she complied. But after listening to a litany of complaints, criticism of his accomplices, and his despair over the project, she actually urged him to drop the idea and focus on something else. All of Petit's cohorts left New York to await an update on when the coup will happen, or even if he will attempt it at all. Throughout this travail, Philippe never stopped his public street performances. His favorite venue was a large square overlooked by the Plaza Hotel, his usual audience numbering about 300 people. But even here, his talent didn't go unnoticed. A Daily News columnist interviewed him, and Petit mentioned his antics in Paris and Sydney, and hinted at a similar activity in New York City. A local TV news crew followed up the next day, and Petit again hinted at a clandestine wire walk and concluded the interview by presenting the female reporter with her own watch that he lifted during their exchange. This attention renews his determination to carry out the Twin Towers escapade, and he returns with Annie to the World Trade Center. On this visit, he stumbles into a remarkable piece of good fortune— Merely walking through the lobby, he heard his name being called, and turning to the source of the voice, he saw a very well-dressed man with a striking handlebar mustache. The man ebulliently explained that he saw Philippe performing in Paris while the stranger was on vacation. He introduced himself, also responding to Philippe's already probing questions, telling the aerialist that he works on the 82nd floor of the South Tower. His name is Barry Greenhouse, employed by the New York State Insurance Department, and most importantly, his office is on an upper floor. When Barry asked Philippe what he is doing in the World Trade Center, Philippe invited him to dinner, realizing that Greenhouse may be the most valuable accomplice in his entire crew. At dinner, with Annie participating, Petit wheeled out his photo album scrapbook of his antics in Paris and Sydney and thinking, based on Greenhouse's amused reaction, that the streetwise New Yorker probably has figured out what he is up to. Petit spells out his plan exactly, asking for the older man's help. After asking some general questions, probably to see how serious Petit was, Greenhouse offered to assist in any way that he can. An insider was crucial to getting the massive amount of necessary equipment onto the roof. Under the guise of a normal delivery with a forged purchase order, Petit drove a dress rehearsal delivery truck into the basement, unloaded it onto the loading dock, and took the freight elevator to Greenhouse's floor, and then to a waiting Barry, who nonchalantly accepted the delivery in his office, not acknowledging Philippe and his cohorts, two friends of Jim Moore, recruited for the day. 
Barry also eventually follows up by offering the knowledge that he has found a large area on his floor that will allow the clandestine storage of both men and equipment. Petit is encouraged by the fact that the security guard activating the gate at the subterranean entrance barely looked at the purchase order before raising the barrier, and the elevator operator merely asked for their destination and never even requested any paperwork. By the end of June, Philippe has made great strides and had some incredible good fortune, but he still must convince Jean-Louis Blondeau that it's worthwhile to return to New York. He took four days to compose as much for himself as for Blondeau, a 21-page letter replete with diagrams, specific instructions, and a list of the equipment necessary and already acquired. The letter disabuses Jean-Louis of any notion that Petit will not make a serious attempt, and he not only responds enthusiastically, he offers to recruit another crew member, Jean-Francois Heckel, the other individual who helped with the ascent of Notre Dame. After a lengthy phone call to France, Philippe set a date for the coup. The equipment will be smuggled in on the late afternoon of August 6th, and the men will hide until the early morning of August 7th, 1974, where they will emerge and begin the process of stretching a wire between the twin towers of the World Trade Center. Throughout the planning stages of this attempt, Philippe never stopped his street performances. One day after he performed his usual acrobatics and unicycle act, in front of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, he was approached by a woman who explained that she was working on a project with the actor Dustin Hoffman that involved circus performers. Typically, laser-focused, Petit inwardly had no interest in such a project at the moment, but he at least accepted her card, and eventually a meeting was set up. Hoffman pitched him on his circus idea, but Philippe was polite but firm in explaining that he was currently completely concentrating on his own project. He showed Hoffman his scrapbook of photos and explained that he was about to string a wire between two buildings for another illegal performance in New York City. When Hoffman asked where the wires would be, Philippe begs off, telling him that for now, that must be a secret. The actor was intrigued and spontaneously offered his own suggestion for the perfect caper, a walk between the towers of the World Trade Center. Petit practically choked but feigned ignorance as to what the location was, at least acknowledging awareness of the two large towers that are downtown, but in a way that indicated he barely knew of their existence. As he is leaving, Philippe, wanting to leave a good impression, offered to add the actor to a list of press and individuals who will be notified a few hours before the walk will take place. Hoffman enthusiastically provided his phone number. With the World Trade Center still under construction, the security policy covering the buildings is also a work in progress. Petit got an alarming phone call from Barry Greenhouse, the executive explaining that he had just been issued a personalized ID badge and that all tower employees and any individuals entering the WTC would need to present official identification. Greenhouse allowed Petit to take his ID to a graphic designer, who produced seven unique photo ID cards from a fictitious entity known as the Fisher Industrial Fence Company, a firm that supposedly installs electric fences and gates within large construction projects. With time running out, this was another crucial contribution from Barry Greenhouse. Because they cannot afford to take too much time off, Jean-Louis Blondeau especially, Petit's two accomplices do not even arrive in the U.S. until Sunday, August 4th. 
After a joyous reunion, the interaction between Blondeau and Petit quickly turned acrimonious, especially when Blondeau suggested fundamental changes to Philippe's plan. The meticulous Jean-Louis is irritated by Petit's lack of personal observation of locations in the North Tower, where Blondeau will have to hide, and his plan to somehow manually transport heavy equipment from the 82nd floor in both towers. He also beats two of the American recruits, Alan Wenner and David Foreman, who are mere acquaintances of Jim Moore, and he was totally unimpressed. So close to the date of the coup, there was little that Petit could say other than that they were the best he could do. Finally, Blondeau demands that they begin the operation during normal office hours, because if they are challenged, especially on the stairwell, they can bluff their way out of the situation and try again. But if they are detected by security at night, most likely by a guard or cop, they will have no excuse for their presence and will be immediately expelled. It is a compelling argument, but Petit offers the circular logic that they are most likely to encounter security during office hours. Therefore, they should wait for nightfall. Blondeau disagrees and then plays the ultimate trump card. Either do it his way or he is out. The younger and less confrontational Jean-Francois and the quiet Annie can only helplessly observe this battle of wills between two control freaks. Petit is furious, but with no other choice, he accedes to Blondeau's demands, but inwardly vowed that once he completed the walk, he would never even speak to Jean-Louis Blondeau again. Somehow, amidst all of this turmoil, until the early morning hours of August 6th, the two men organized and labeled the equipment, crated in wooden boxes, blue tape for the North Tower, red for the South. Attempting to finally get some rest, Petit gets no more than 30 minutes of sleep, constantly storming around the apartment, either complaining or obsessing over petty details. Annie ultimately stopped trying to console or even reason with him. Although the delivery truck rented by a third American accomplice arrives right on time at noon, the rest of the crew wandered in haphazardly. Some, like Jim Moore, early and eager to help. Others, especially Alan and David, are late and uncooperative. Jean-Louis changes into his disguise, donning a business suit and tie. Blondeau will also have a small metal attaché case filled with photo equipment and a cylinder that will carry blueprints to burnish this disguise. In the same cylinder, he carries the bow and arrow attached to a spool of fishing line that will start the rigging process. He will be working in the North Tower with Alan, who will also eventually don a suit and tie after helping to unload. Unbeknownst to anyone, Alan is also secretly carrying a camera despite being told repeatedly by both Philippe and Blondeau that he is not to photograph anything. The packed delivery truck finally heads downtown. Jim Moore is dropped at his apartment where he will serve as the receptionist for the Fisher Industrial Fence Company. Should someone attempt to verify the alleged delivery, the phone number on forged purchase orders matching his residence number. Moore has also repeatedly told Petit that he wants nothing to do with rigging the building never fully explaining that he does not want it on his conscience if something terrible occurs. The truck easily accesses the delivery area, but the loading dock is chaos. Several massive corporate moves are underway, and the foreman overseeing the operation initially tells them that they will have to return some other time. But eventually he relents and allows the crew to get their equipment into the building. Petit, Jean-Francois, and David get a huge break when the elevator operator is too disinterested to really care where he takes them. The workday almost concluded. 
Improvising, Philippe requests that he take them to the 104th floor. There, it is only six flights to the 110th floor. Philippe and Jean-Francois intently focused on the task of getting all of the equipment to the vicinity of the roof, and David occasionally contributing. With the process complete and workers about to leave the construction site, it is clear that the group will have to improvise a hiding place, which quickly becomes remaining perfectly still under two tarps for several hours. Already hesitant, David quickly told Philippe that he couldn't do that and wanted out. Instead of anger, Petit is practically relieved. Realistically, David is a hindrance. He agreed that maybe it is for the best, and David gleefully raced down the stairwell like a child getting out of school early. For three hours, the two men remain under the tarp, police patrolling the area haphazardly. At 11 o'clock, realizing that they are running out of time, the two men emerge from their refuge. Returning to the stairwell, they begin to bring up the most important equipment, especially the cable. But at the last minute, they both see a security guard sitting at a desk across the space of a partially constructed floor. Dressed like workmen, carrying what he probably presumed to be building materials, the guard looked directly at them, but did nothing. On the North Tower, Jean-Louis and Alan have had to wait for a similar amount of time for the workmen and security to leave. They also get to the top of the tower at approximately 11 p.m., but both pairs of men are elated to see each other in the glow of the red aircraft beacon that intermittently flashed every few seconds, presenting a temporary illumination. Knowing that they are behind schedule, Jean-Louis assembles his bow and arrow, ties the spool of fishing line to the projectile, and after exchanging a prearranged signal, he launched the missile toward Philippe. They have discussed this process endlessly, with various precautions depending on the visible result, but Petit, in the darkness, cannot even see where the arrow went. Deciding that it must be somewhere, he took off most of his clothing, presuming that he will feel the fishing line somewhere on his body. This gambit works, walking back and forth slowly near the edge of the tower, he eventually feels the line against his ribs and manually follows it to the arrow, which is perched only a few inches from falling off the side of the building. While this transpires, Jean-Francois returns from his vantage point observing the security guard to inform Philippe that the man has left. Quickly, the two men retrieve the rest of their equipment from the stairwell. The process progresses rapidly. Thicker and thicker ropes and wires are exchanged across the gap, and a cheap intercom is connected. The crew is elated. It is only midnight, and the rest of the rigging and finishing touches should be in place within three hours, well ahead of schedule. They also now have the ability to verbally interact. Finally, Petit is ready for Jean-Louis and Alan to pull across the actual guy wire. As a precaution, Philippe uses strong clamps to anchor his end of the cable to a steel column so that it won't fall and can be pulled taut by the two men on the other side. The first portion of the cable is pulled across smoothly, Philippe and Jean-Francois letting it out of its coil about a foot at a time. Eventually, the weight of the cable, the longest and heaviest Petit has ever employed, starts to move on its own, the weight not yet fully secured on the other side. Suddenly, the pull on the wire becomes so extreme that Philippe and Jean-Francois cannot restrain it. They have to let it go, the cable now rapidly descending downward at a dangerous speed until it finally snaps taut with an alarming crack. 
On Petit's side, it is now perfectly tight, but much of the cable in the gap is slack in a U-shape, and Jean-Louis and Alan will still have to pull the last of the attached rope and much of the cable manually towards them so that the wire is no longer loose, or at least as taut as possible. They are handicapped by the sheer weight of the cable, 440 pounds. For hours, they pull on it, Alan clearly ready to give up, but realizing that Jean-Louis has no intention of throwing in the towel. Six inches at a time, for hours, progress made by tiny increments. On the intercom, Philippe suggested that they grab onto the attached smaller Cavaletti wires as soon as possible and pull on those. Advice that helps save some time. The skies are starting to lighten. Sunrise is at 5.58 a.m. On his side, Petit scampers onto the ledge of the building to tighten the two Cavaletti wires he has specially placed for maximum stability. He has given specific instructions to Blondeau as to how he wants them fastened on the other side. It is almost fully daylight, a little before 6 a.m. In the street below, the rest of Petit's crew anxiously awaited full visibility to see if there was even a sign of any cable. Annie Alex grabbed a cab from Philippe's Chelsea apartment and was terrified as to what she would find when she got to the World Trade Center. When she arrived, using binoculars, she could see a cable, but noticed immediately that it was still too slack. Even with the naked eye, Barry Greenhouse noticed that the cable was very loose and couldn't conceive of anyone walking on it, much less crossing it completely. On the roof, Jean-Louis is still pulling the wire across and finally tightens it as much as possible, and he ties the Cavaletti ropes and secures the cable with his own set of sophisticated clamps. Alan has actually given up, figuring that they are possibly moments away from being arrested. He began changing back into his business suit, so he is not identified as an accomplice. On his side, Philippe is attempting to run through a final check of all of the clamps and the wire itself. His last intercom message is to Jean-Louis, telling him to also change into his suit, to avoid arrest, and that he will wait until Jean-Louis is in place with his movie camera in hand. Petit then grabbed a cloth satchel containing his all-black street busker uniform to be worn as a final affront to authority. He is in such a frenzy of frustration and fatigue that when he can't find his turtleneck sweater, he begins tossing items over his shoulder, one piece, the turtleneck sweater going over the side of the building. Down below, his compatriots can only see a black dot falling, getting closer and closer. It is a long few seconds before they realize it is a piece of clothing and not a human being. Petit settles on a thin, dark V-neck sweater that he intended as an undergarment. In a small pocket is a $20 bill and his passport. He washed his face and hands with a bottle of water from Jean-Francois and says to his friend, Let's do it. Let's go. Behind him, Philippe can see the giant wheel of the temporary freight elevator starting to turn occasionally. It is approximately 7 a.m. Soon the entire area will be crawling with workers and security. Petit knows it is now or never. He is utterly exhausted and has gotten virtually no sleep for two consecutive days. Later, Blondeau would call the wire the worst they had ever rigged together. Both he and Jean-Francois Heckel were also terrified believing that it was very possible that Petit would fall. But Petit had already made up his mind. I had to make a decision of shifting my weight from one foot anchored to the building to the one foot anchored on the wire. This is possibly the end of my life, to step on that wire. But on the other hand, something that I could not resist. I did not make any effort to resist. 
something called me onto the cable, and death is very close. In front of Petit, the one-inch wire stretches approximately 200 feet to the north tower. He is 1,350 feet above ground. Even if the wire is reasonably taut, his weight might snap it or start a process that disconnects it from the building. It may also still be so slack that it wobbles him off balance. He gently placed his left foot on the cable, his right leg still leaning on the building. Then he shifted his weight and stepped completely onto the wire. Thank you for listening to part one of this podcast about Philippe Petit. Much of the information for this podcast came from the book To Reach the Clouds by Philippe Petit. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Subscribe to my YouTube page at Noblesse Oblige, and also rate us on iTunes. If you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website. Music